Imagine the softest sheets you've ever felt. Now imagine them getting even softer over time. That's what you'll feel with Bolin Branch's organic cotton sheets. In a recent customer survey, 96% replied that Bolin Branch's sheets get softer with every wash. Start getting your best night's sleep in these sheets that get softer and softer for years to come. Try their sheets with a 30-night guarantee, plus 15% off your first order at bolinbranch.com code odyssey. Exclusions apply. See site for details. Hey folks, this is Kevin. On this week's episode of Risk, you'll hear Donna Edwards. And she flopped those off and I was like, ah, the prettiest pink nipples I'd ever seen in my life at 18. That and more. But before that, you know, sometimes it feels like there aren't enough hours in the day. What the fuck am I talking about? Sometimes, all times, it feels like there aren't enough hours in the day, even when you're working past nine to five. So if you're making the time-consuming trips to the post offices, you've got to know there's a better way. Use Stamps.com, motherfuckers. With Stamps.com, you get the postage you need, the instant you need it. You buy and print official U.S. postage for any letter or package right from your own computer or printer. It's quick and easy. You save money with Stamps.com, too. Just a fraction of the cost of one of those expensive postage meters. Plus, you get special postage discounts you can't find at the post office. We use Stamps.com at Risk and the Story Studio, and we love it. And right now you can sign up for Stamps.com using our promo code RISK for this special offer. It's a four-week trial plus a $110 bonus offer that includes postage and a digital scale. So get started with Stamps.com today. Within minutes, you'll be printing postage right from your desk. Go to Stamps.com. Before you do anything else, click on the microphone at the top of the homepage and type in RISK. That's Stamps.com. Enter RISK. Now here's the show. Kids, this is Risk, the show where people tell true stories they never thought they'd dare to share. I'm Kevin Allison, and this is the legendary Dizzy Gillespie behind me now, or as the French say, Dizzy Gillespie, and the remix is by Funky Low Lives. We're calling today's episode. <laughs> I don't know, my mouth isn't quite working working today we're calling today's episode satisfaction because you know pretty much i think i think pretty much everything we do we do because we think it's gonna make us feel better at some point right that's why we're doing almost every goddamn thing we do and yet my friends so very much of what we do does not end up making us feel better. 
but these are three stories of uh, of people who uh, were able to make the adjustments. <clears throat> Pardon me. Who were able to make adjustments and feel better once again. We're going to feature two stories from our fabulous show that we did in Houston, Texas just a few weeks ago, and then one from our most recent Bell House show in Brooklyn. Holy shit, we are so happy with those shows at the Bell House. If you live in New York City, you gotta come see us. We are back there on March 23rd. In a little bit, we're going to hear from the fabulous Nessa Voss in Houston, Texas. It was her first time sharing a story on stage like this. But before that, another total newcomer, Donna Edwards, shared this one in Houston. Boy, it was so much fun that night. Here's Donna now with a story we call Hot Cross Bunny. Orleans. I'm eight years old. I'm walking down Bourbon Street to go to my mom's club that she ran, and it was right above Big Daddy's, a famous strip club. And I would always stop and, you know, take a little peek in and see if I could see some tits and ass, you know. Because uh, I, I knew I was different at eight, just didn't realize how different. Um, so my mom's best friend owned Big Daddy's, and he ran all the strip clubs on bourbon and I got to know him and I got to go in those strip clubs. So when I was about 18, I started hanging out in Big Daddy's and his son also hung out in Big Daddy's and he didn't like me because I was gay. Now, Billy was a um, really male chauvinist, thought he was God's gift to women and married it, but still running around on his wife, but that's, that's his shit, not mine. Um, <laughs> But there was a stripper in there named Bunny. Now, Bunny was a beautiful, big-boobed, blonde, blue eyes, just really beautiful woman. She wasn't like the rest of the strippers, you know, those bone girls that just get up there and ride the pole. Um, she really made love to the pole and just really made you... <laughs> made you want to be a stripper, really. Um, but... She liked my little bony ass. Okay, I know I'm not bony now, but I was bony then, okay. Uh, <laughs> so when I was in Big Daddy's with Rick, the owner of the club, and she would be on stage making love to the pole, and she'd be looking at me, and then she'd go... I would turn red, but I would walk over there because I didn't want to disappoint her. Uh, and she would crawl across the stage and give me this, I'm going to fuck you later. And I'm like, ah! And she would back her ass up on me, and then she'd flip her legs over and pull that G-string to the side. And whatever I had in my pocket was bunnies. Uh, so when she would get off stage, she'd come over there, and she'd get me, and she'd take me to a little dark corner and tell me all the ways she wanted me to fuck her. And I was like, oh, okay. 
Yeah, yeah, sure. Whatever. Uh, just as long as you're sitting on my lap kissing me, I don't give a shit what you want me to do. So um, she would finish her thing, and I would go back and sit by Rick, and then I'd tell him I have to go, and I'd run down to the bar down the street and talk to my friend that I grew up with. His name was Tommy, and I'd say, Tommy, she's driving me crazy. And he goes, fuck that shit. What's wrong with you? <laughs> and I'm going, she's a stripper. She's older than I am. I'm a little shy. He goes, fuck that shit. <laughs> he says, you need to smoke some weed and fuck that shit. I was like, Tommy, I can't fuck that chick. I have to fuck that chick. <laughs> so I smoked some weed with Tommy in the back of his bar, and I went back. I was going to fuck that chick. <laughs> so I go back in there, got my confidence up a little high. She walks over and she goes, baby, what are you doing back? I'm like, I want to fuck you. I've, I've come to realize that, yes. I want to. And she goes, well, I'm on break. How about Rick's office? (laughs) I turn and look at Rick, and Rick goes, go for it, kid. What the hell? You're still sitting here. (laughs) We go into the office. Now, I don't know if you can tell from these lights, but I'm pretty red right now. (laughs) I was pretty red then. She drops her little G-string, and back in the 1980s, they had to wear these ugly Band-Aid pasties on their nipples, and she flopped those off, and I was like, ah, the prettiest pink nipples I had ever seen in my life at 18. So she lays back on this love seat that Rick just so happens to have in his office. (laughs) Well, I go over there, and I start making out with her. I start fucking her. I make my way down and I start sucking and fucking her. She's into it because, you know, she's pulling my hair and I'm like, damn, I'm actually fucking an older woman. (laughs) And she's a stripper, the prettiest one out there. (laughs) So then she rips off my pants and I'm like, whoa, whoa, I I didn't plan this. this. This was not my fantasy. But anyway, she tries to get me to come, but I'm excited. You know, I I can't. So she goes, baby, my break's over, and this is taking way too damn long. And I'm like, (laughs) I'm like, I'm young. I'm okay. So I go back out there by Rick, and Rick's like, you need a drink? And I'm like, oh, fuck, yes. Just anything that's liquid, I will take right now. So I, I drink my drink, and I run back down to tell Tommy. Tommy, I fucked her. And he's like, yes. Oh, my friends want to fuck her, too. What do you think the, the odds of that is? And I was like, whoa, buddy, no. Yeah, no, no. So a couple days pass, and I go back down there to talk to my buddy Rick and, and hoping to see Bunny. Well, I walk into the bar, and there sits Rick's son. And he has this pissed-off look on his face. And I kind of looked at him. I was a little scared, but I'm like, eh, he's an asshole. So I, I look at Rick, and I'm like, what's up? And he goes, ah, we kind of have a problem. And I'm like, really? And all of a sudden, Billy starts screaming, you dyke, you fucked my girlfriend. (laughs) I'm like, yo, dude, I don't know who your girlfriend is. Aren't you married? And he goes, no, you fucked my girlfriend. And I watched it. My father has cameras in his office. (laughs) 
kind of knew that, but I forgot. <laughs> so Rick looks at me and goes, ah. I'm like, yeah, okay. I said, okay, well, I won't fuck her again. Once in a lifetime thing, I'm good with it. And he goes, well, I'm not. You're kicked out of this fucking bar. Oh, yeah, that was, I'm like, no, 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 no. I love this bar. Uh, I love looking at strippers, so, yeah. I was like, Rick, can he do this? You own this bar. And he goes, just, just go, I'll, I'll fix it. And I'm like, oh, okay. So I leave, and I go down, and I tell my friend Tommy, Bob, that's Billy's girlfriend. He went, oh, shit. What the hell are you going to do? I'm like, I don't know. I'm hoping Rick will uh, kind of fix this. I don't have to fuck her again. I'm cool with that. I just really like seeing women naked, and that's a good place to see them naked. And he's like, yeah, I like going there too. <laughs> you always got me free drinks. And I'm like, yeah, no more free drinks, fuck. So anyway, Rick sends a couple days. He sends a guy down there to my job and says, hey, Rick wants to talk to you. When you get off work, go down there. And I'm like, Cool. So I walk in, and there sits Rick, and there sits Billy, grinning like a chest of cheetah. And I'm like, what the fuck's going on here? So I looked at Rick, and I'm like, so, how do I get back in the bar? And he goes, well, Billy wants you and him to have a three-way with Bonnie. I look at Billy because Billy's not very attractive. And I don't like penis. And I'm like, I'm like, okay, okay, this is, this is, okay. No, 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 no. I said, um, does he get to, no? And Rick's like, oh no, girl, we know you queer, no. like it's just you and him fucking Bonnie in my office because he wants it taped I'm like well that's a little gross but okay I'm like uh okay well okay I stood there for a couple minutes going damn can I do this because he is really not attractive okay you know if he was like if he looked like Rick Rick was an older Italian guy very nicely groomed very nice looking guy he was a slob. There's no telling what his mother looked like. So I'm like, so, so I get my bearings and I looked at him. I said, so, okay, when would you like to do this? And he goes, tonight. And I'm like, ooh, tonight. I got to get very high to do this tonight. <laughs> so I looked at Rick and I said, so if I do this, and I look back at him, I can come in this bar. And Billy goes, and you can still fuck Bonnie. And I'm like, yes. This is, this is good. So I'm like, okay, I'll be back tonight. I see you later. So I run my ass home, okay? Because I knew my roommate had X. X is a good drug in the 1980s. Got over a lot of shit when you did X. So I tell my friend I need some X, and she's like, for what? And I'm like, Okay, remember I told you I was kicked out of the bar? Well, I got to have this three-way. And she's like, you? You are so shy. Really? You're actually going to fuck a dude? I'm like, no, no, no fucking a dude. No. I'm just going to be in a room with him. And she's like, yeah, okay, you do need some ex. 
So we start drinking. We take the X. And I got to get on the streetcar and go back to the French Quarter. That's another story. <laughs> so I get on the streetcar. I wind up in Big Daddy's. I walk in and Rick goes, where you been? They're already in there. And I'm like, fuck. I'm like, okay, this is cool. I open the door. And there was Bunny giving Billy head. I'd never seen that shit before. (laughs) She took him all the way in and all the way out. And I'm standing there going, damn, why didn't God make me a dude? Shit. He looks like this is the best shit that's ever happened in his life. (laughs) So I'm standing there for a couple minutes and he gives me the... Well, that's my cue to fuck her too. So I'm like, okay. So I get down there. I'm eating her. I'm fucking her. And all I can do is look up and watch her give Billy head. And I was pissed. I want a dick. So. Yeah, you motherfuckers are. Yeah, yeah. You know who you are. So. So. Then he flips her over. She rips off my little shorts and she's trying again. But it works this time because I got that visual in my head of. (laughs) I come, everybody comes. And so it's it's over. Everything ends. And Billy puts out his hands and I shook his hand and he goes, you know, I still don't like you. And I'm like, yeah, well, I don't like you either. And he goes, but this girl right here likes you and my father loves you. So that's the only reason I agreed to this. And I'm like, yeah, okay. Yeah. I got a man to see about a horse. So I walk out there and Rick's sitting there and he's looking at me and goes, so kid, how'd it go? And I'm like, oh, it went okay. And he goes, he didn't touch you, did he? And I'm like, mm-mm. I said, but it, it, it was nice. And he goes, really? And I'm like, yeah. I said, but I got to go somewhere. I'll see you later. My ass leaves the Big Daddy's. I go to my first sex shop, and I buy me a strap-on. Fuck that shit. (laughs) If I can't feel it, I'm going to watch it. So every Friday night, I got to do Bunny in the office with my strap-on. It was heavenly. (laughs) Until Billy fired her and I was like yeah that's what I thought really where am I going to find another girl to do this but I did (laughs) so 30 years later I'm old 30 years later I still have a strap (laughs) I still get to use it but I still remember Bunny though the first time I ever did it strap on style Thanks. The bunny, the bunny, whoa, I ate the bunny. I didn't eat my soup or my bread, just the bunny. The bunny, the bunny, oh, I love the bunny. Strap on to Fox X Bunny.
kind of like taking something horrible and making it funny, so that's what I do. All right, so not that you can tell from from this, but I'm I'm a really nice person in general. Um, I was a Girl Scout up until high school when it was not really cool to be a Girl Scout anymore. And I'm the kind of person who, if I see something cool at the grocery store or the mall, say, hey, I know so-and-so would like this. I should get it for them. I'm just a really nice person. Except this one time, I really wanted this innocent person to die a horrible, painful death. (laughs) So how does this happen? So it's about January 2001. I just got my undergraduate degree in philosophy. So as you can imagine, I don't know what to do with my life. (laughs) I'm working at a coffee shop. Uh, Various coffee shops will enter my life at different times. And I went from being surrounded by people who read cool books, who had cool ideas, did cool stuff, to making frappuccinos and being lonely and depressed. I had to do something. I had no romance in my life. I hadn't applied to graduate school. I had been rejected, round one, of being rejected from graduate school. So I was pretty down. So I joined a book club. I needed to meet more like-minded people so I could totally nerd out with them. Then I would be happy, maybe meet someone. It'd be great. And it was. I met this man, I will call him Bertie, after Bertrand Russell. Um, Bertie, oh my gosh, philosophy, kind of dreamboat. Big hair, big nose, big glasses. Well, not big everything, but but, but, the really important stuff. (laughs) I'm a nice person. I see him sitting there, and he's like, oh, this guy looks like my type. So I sit down next to him at the book club, and we start talking. And I say, oh, I sound like such a jerk here. I really like T.S. Eliot. (laughs) Oh, I like T.S. Eliot, too. What's your favorite T.S. Eliot poem? Oh. I tell him I have an undergraduate degree in philosophy. He says, oh, I teach English literature. (laughs) (laughs) Oh, so you did philosophy. I've read some of Plato's works. What what do you like about Plato? You're asking me? (sighs) (laughs) So, turns out, we love everything that the other person loves. We have these great conversations. We love everything, the same things, except he loves one thing that I do not love. His wife. (laughs) So... We begin having this affair from time to time. And I wind up at his house when she's out of town. She's a banker. Let's call her Susan. And so she goes away on these long business trips. And I come over to the house. And I see her picture. Susan. (laughs) The perfect woman. The nice hair. It's perfectly straight, like she knows how to use a straightener. I didn't even know what one was. You know, perfect body shape, perfect clothes, designer clothes. Looks like she bought stuff from catalogs, all matched perfectly. 
fancy degree in her finance and banking sends her to New York and Washington, D.C. all the time because she's so special, so important. And her skin was so clean and perfect. These were times when Photoshop was not going on. It was just that beautiful. And then there's me. There's me. (laughs) Not the best skin. A little awkward. Not very perfect. But perfect in an imperfect way. Just like Birdie. Just like Birdie. We were imperfect, perfectly together, Birdie and I. We were really meant to be together. We loved the same kinds of books, the same kind of ideas. When she was out of town, we would read together in our underpants. Sex wasn't even that important, really. But it was, we can read books naked together. So hot. God, I miss that. And we would talk about the big ideas, the virtuous life while having an affair. Never (laughs) dawned on us. What is, what is our duties to the law? What is, what is beauty? Does God exist? And we read books on these topics together and discussed them. She read a book once, to my knowledge. It was The Fountainhead. That was her favorite book. That maybe made her less perfect, actually. They shouldn't be together. That's her favorite book. Birdie and I should be together. Months pass, and it's back and forth, as can be imagined, an affair. So sometimes I get these phone calls, which are just like catnip to a girl in her early 20s who has no direction in life. I need you to come over right now. I just look at you when you're reading, and I just think, I'm so lucky to have you here. I just look at you and, wow. Oh, my gosh. But of course... There's the other parts of the phone call. It's usually, I need you to come over right now. Susan just left for New York again. And this does hurt quite a bit. So fast forward ahead to September 2001. In fact, September 11th, 2001. I go to work that morning. Like, rather thoughtlessly going into work to make more frappuccinos for people, make more coffee. And my coworkers are listening to a radio because, yep, internet's still kind of (laughs) new. What's going on? Why is everyone so concerned? Oh, haven't you heard? A plane flew into one of the World Trade Centers. (sighs) Really? And so we listen some more, and another plane hits the next tower, and we are all in shock. We don't have a TV, but... The business next door does, and they have opened their doors. So we go, I've got got to go see this on TV. Is this really happening? So we're watching the images, people crying, the fire, the buildings are falling down. And it suddenly occurs to me, Susan is in New York City. She often works in the World Trade Center. She might be in that building as it collapses. She might be on fire right now. Her perfect skin might be on fire right now. Her perfect hair singed with smoke. She would be slowly dying with all those poor people. And I was kind of happy about that. I thought, could it it be? 
Is the universe taking her out of the picture? For me, I, I just have these strange hopes and desires that I don't know what to do with. Let her die if people are falling to their deaths. Is it her? And I start, not surprisingly so, feeling really bad about myself, as I should. I ought to feel bad. So everyone, my coworkers, were crying. But I start crying a little bit harder. My coworkers misconstrue this as, you have a really nice, caring person. Of course you're going to feel really bad. But I lost a little bit of dignity that day. But I did finally understand something about female behavior that mystified me. Because I was having the same experience as those girls on Jerry Springer, because that was the show du jour back then. And I never understood there'd be a woman and a man on stage. Man is cheating on the woman. Other woman walks out, smacks the woman. Why doesn't she hit the guy? And there I was, demanding that this innocent woman who did nothing wrong but marry this two-timer, and I was hoping she died in a horrible terrorist event. I tried calling Birdie repeatedly that day. I really wanted to know what happened to her. I was still going, oh, no, but yes, but no, wrong. But his line was always busy. Of course it was. He was calling everyone, trying to find out if his wife, Susan, was still alive. I couldn't get through. When I finally got through, I heard the news. She was alive. She was too perfect to die that day. (laughs) She just happened to be working somewhere else that day. She was near, but was not dead. Not even singed. And I knew that moment that our relationship was over. I couldn't compete with her anymore. I could compete beforehand. Yeah, she was this perfect wife, but I had my books, my quirky ideas, and I guess I was a little younger, but still, I don't think that mattered much to him. But here was a woman that came back from the dead. (laughs) How do you compete with that? So I got sad once more. I knew it was over. She would win her husband back from me. Which really, okay, that's the right thing to happen. It's not what I want, but ethically that's the right thing. So, thankfully, they decided to move away. I guess that incident brought them closer and made them realize they needed to move somewhere where they could be together. She wouldn't have to travel so far for work all the time. Maybe she was suspicious, too, perhaps. So fast forward a couple years. I start dating. You know, I'm very lonely for a while, but I start a graduate program in philosophy, so I'm doing better. And I meet this guy who kind of reminds me of Bertie a little bit. He's got a big nose, crazy curly hair, sometimes wears thick glasses, added bonus, plays flamenco guitar. While smoking cigarettes. (laughs) On Valentine's Day, he bought me a copy of Jean-Paul Sartre's Nausea, Dreamboat, 
So I fall in love with him like how I'd fallen in love with Bertie years earlier. After a couple months of dating, I look up at him and I confide in him about my relationship with this married man, Bertie. And it dawns on me how painful it really was for all the good qualities, for how much love and excitement, it was a lot of pain, a lot of feelings of betrayal, of always being second to someone else. And it really hurt my self-esteem to be in a position of the mistress, the other woman. It was not as glamorous as I had previously thought. Lance took a really deep breath, kind of rang his hands together, chuckled a little bit, and went, funny story about (laughs) you sleeping with married guys. (laughs) Uh Uh-oh. Thank you. This is J.C. Someone and the Uptown Sound. Oh, fuck. I forgot what his name was. Oh, Brooks. J.C. Brooks and the Uptown Sound. And we just heard from newcomer Nessa Voss. You would never know that some of these people were telling stories for the first goddamn time. Before that, we heard a little interstitial from Jeff Barr and the people at Veggie Tales, of course. And if you've been thinking, God damn, this episode has everything except Quint, the shark hunter from Jaws. Well, folks, you're dead ass wrong, because here he is now. You know, when I take a notion to put a Frank in the bun, I head on over to AdamandEve.com Adam and Eve has over 10 million satisfied customers. They got lingerie and lube, of course, and all them succulent adult toys. They got the Pizza Beaver, the Kenny Bunkport Surprise, and the Fountain of You. They got the Hot Toboggan, the Teensy Greek, and the choice carol oats. They got the bald dolphin. The Nicaraguan peach picker. And condoms. Of course, obviously, they've got condoms. 
And right now you get 10 free gifts with any order when you use our offer code R-I-S-K. You get a sexy surprise for her, an adventurous toy for him, a gift you'll both enjoy, and six free full-length adult DVDs, plus free shipping. That's ten free gifts when you use our offer code R-I-S-K. So what are you waiting for? When you're ready to slide down the meat banister and dance the chocolate cha-cha, head on over adamandeve.com Oh, always great to hear from old Quint. And who better to be telling you what to stick up your butt? Now, for our last story today, we are going to hear from an old friend and a favorite of ours on the show, Jalenta Greenberg, who is a New York City cultural correspondent for the BBC now. You can also find her at jalentagreenberg.com. Here she is now at the Risk Live show at the Bell House in Brooklyn with a story we call Juicy. I'm here to talk about my boobs. I'm here to talk about my boobs. Thanks. When I was 15, I grew them overnight, which sounds cool, but isn't. I went from having, like, you know, roughly a mosquito bite situation to huge, giant tits. Like, like really, really big. Like they don't make sizes for you anymore past a certain point. You know, you start getting into alphabet letters like H's and stuff. And it's, it's a dark place to be when you're 15. It is not fun. And I also didn't really notice I was getting boobs. I finally realized they had sort of sprung up uh, when I was at the mall with my mother and we were walking down a, a mall corridor, as you do, and all of a sudden she just whips around and yells at a stranger across the corridor, yeah, keep walking, buddy, she can't even drive yet. <laughs> and I had no idea what was happening, but my mother, she took me to the food court and she sat me down over a slice of pizza and she explained that that middle-aged mall man was, was looking at my breasts. And basically, once your tits come in, like, your body isn't yours anymore. So get used to that. You are now a coveted object and no longer a child, let alone a human, so enjoy life, honey. (laughs) So that was a rude awakening. My body isn't mine anymore. And it was even harder to find clothes. Than I, than I could ever imagine. Almost harder than learning uh, my body wasn't mine was finding clothes that fit. And all I wanted as a 15-year-old in the uh, very early 2000s uh, was I wanted a T-shirt made by Juicy Couture <laughs> that said Juicy across the tits. All I wanted. But when you have really, really big boobs, you cannot wear shirts that have writing on them because it sort of looks like, instead of saying juicy, your shirt says like, 
Like, <laughs> like, did the printer stop working when it was making your shirt? I don't understand. It's really, you just, it's, it's, it's pointless. Also, a difficult thing once my boobs came in was a PE class. It's not fun. Not fun ever, let alone when you have giant grandma tits. Um, you know, real, real big giant breasts are very different from fake ones. They are very heavy and like they're not perky perfect circles and like when you lay on your back they turn into pancakes. They don't like stand at attention. So running with those hurts in many places. So your shoulders, your back, your, your tit skin. Like, <laughs> it's working overtime. So that wasn't fun in PE, nor is it fun to change in front of your peers and show off how you have to wear three sports bras. <laughs> so to remedy this problem as a young adult, I was like, I got it. Not gonna go to PE anymore. <laughs> Done! And it went great. It went great for like a semester and a half. And then one day my family comes home from dinner and uh, we have a message on the machine that, that goes like this, like, beep. Hello, Mr. and Mrs. Greenberg. I'm calling with some bad news. Uh, this is your daughter's school and uh, we regret to inform you that she has stopped physical education altogether. <laughs> Uh, we understand your child's need to express herself, but there is a state law requiring a certain number of hours of physical education or your daughter will not graduate. So that was a, a little come to Jesus moment for me and my parents because they didn't know I just stopped signing up for physical education courses. And, uh, and I decided I was gonna turn over a new leaf. I was gonna say, fuck it, fuck these boobs, fuck PE, I'm gonna live my life, I'm gonna graduate high school, and I'm just, I'm just gonna do me and not worry about these tits. So, so to celebrate that, I went to my favorite place to express myself at the time, uh, which was The Gap. <laughs> you know it. And I scoured the store until I found the perfect top to debut, like the new me, the new me that's gonna graduate and take a PE class. <laughs> so I buy this beautiful, like pastel yellow built-in bra halter top. You know, it's the kind of halter top that's like very work appropriate. You know, it's got a high neck, really thick straps, big hefty built-in bra like it is good to go for school i'm so excited so on the day that i signed up to take racket sports i wore my new top and i was rocking it all day people were complimenting the color makes my eyes pop thank you so much uh and i'm sitting by myself at lunch in the hall because that's where the cool kids sat by themselves in the hall listening to music I went to school in the woods in Oregon. <laughs> so the cool thing to do was to sit by yourself in the hall and listen to music while you ate lunch. So I'm doing that. And uh, one of my teachers walks past and he sees me and he does like a double take. And I'm like, I know, new top. <laughs> and he, he, he sort of bends down and he's like, hey, Jolenta, I'm sorry, but your shirt is so inappropriate for school. You've got to cover it up. 
and I'm mortified. I'm like, oh my God, I'm so sorry. Like, yeah, it's a little much. I'm put a sweater on right now. And uh, he starts walking away. I put a sweater on. And while he's walking away, I, I notice he's about to walk past this girl, Molly. And Molly is basically like your perfect teen specimen. She's, she's short, like good short, because I'm really tall. Uh, she's like, you know, she's like, you know, five, six, and like <laughs> has a size seven shoe, not like a size 11. <laughs> and she like maybe has some really perky full Bs, like on a good day, it's a full B, like she's so cute. And she's wearing the same exact top as me, in the same color. And very important. And my teacher's walking past her, and I'm like, oh shit, like, Molly, watch out, you're gonna get in trouble. And he just walks right past her. Doesn't say a thing. That hurt. That hurt. I realized that it was not my top that was inappropriate for school, but it was, in fact, my, my body making a grown man uncomfortable. So that was a real blow on my day to, like, be me. <laughs> it backfired. Um, and we joke about it now, but I spiraled into a deep depression. Uh, and uh, similarly to how I dealt with PE, that's how I decided to deal with all of school. Uh, so I stopped going. <laughs> Just stop going. No one can make you. Uh, whenever I tell people I didn't go to school, I didn't go to school for a month. And whenever I tell people that, they're like, my parents would have made me. And it's like, I've been six feet tall and weighed like over 150 <laughs> since I was like 10. Like they cannot physically make me do things. <laughs> Thank you. <laughs> so I didn't go to school. Uh, one day, we get, we get a, a familiar message from my school. Hello, Mr. and Mrs. Greenberg. Uh, we regret to inform you that similarly to the PE problem, uh, your daughter now has just stopped showing up to school at all. Uh, also, similar to PE, there is a minimum requirement of days a student has to be in school. And uh, if she doesn't come soon, we're gonna have to expel her. So I was fine uh, with expulsion. That seemed like totally reasonable to me. My parents, not so hot on the idea. So they got desperate and they basically said, if we could do anything, what, what would it take to get you to go back to school? And I came up with the only answer that I thought would be like, they'd be like, oh shit, we can't give her that. No school for her. So I said, I don't know, I guess I just wish my boobs were smaller. The next day, <laughs> I was in a plastic surgeon's office getting a consultation for a breast reduction. And I found myself sitting across a desk from a wonderful plastic surgeon, and she took my hand in hers, and she looked at me in the eye, and she says, I can help you. <laughs> And I wasn't too sure about it, but I, uh, my parents talked me into it. Which also, when I tell people this, like my parents talked me into having a breast reduction at 16. They're like, that's insane. <laughs> and and I, to that person, I say, let me finish the story, please. <laughs> like, thank you, thank you. Um, 
Oh, so uh, the summer between my sophomore and junior year, I had a breast reduction. And I cannot tell you very much about the surgery because they just kept me really high the whole time. Like, that's, that's all there is to it. Like, I remember nothing. I remember the car ride there. And that was it. I ate toast in the car on the way there, uh, which I wasn't supposed to do. <laughs> but I was hungry and a rebel. So, so I, I have the breast reduction and I wake up and I'm still, I'm fully bandaged and I'm connected to a bunch of tubes and drains and machines. But I can tell from the second I wake up, just the feeling on my chest is, it's like a weight was lifted off my chest. <laughs> but seriously, it was like a... <laughs> It was like a lot of weight was re surgically removed from my chest. Um, it, was a, it was an amazing feeling. And I looked down and they just looked perfect. Even though they were swollen and wrapped up, I was like, this is, this is who I was supposed to be the whole time. Like, this is me. They're still very size appropriate. Um, like, I'm not a small girl, but I have, like, you know, functioning, live-withable live breasts now. I felt like my body was, was mine again. I, I was no longer, you know, a coveted object in the world or an object making men who taught me uncomfortable. I was an owner of like, you know, appropriately sized breasts. And uh, I went back to school. In my senior year of high school, I had to take three PE classes and join the tennis team in order to graduate. <laughs> But I did it. Thank you, thank you. And do you guys know what I did the second I was done with recovery? I went and bought that fucking juicy t-shirt. And I wore it with pride because my new tits were juicy. And they were mine. Thank you. <laughs> all for this week's episode folks this is valley lodge behind me now with our good friend dave hill fronting the band there listen in chicago <laughs> we're in chicago on march 10th come out and see us at the concord music hall folks that is going to be an amazing show. We've got amazing stories that we're working on for it. On March 23rd, we are back at the Bell House. And the Bell House is at Brooklyn. 
That is an all-star show. Do not miss it. On March 24th, we're back in L.A. at the Nerdist Showroom, as always. And then what? And then on March 26th, we are in Washington, D.C. Now, you gotta jump on those tickets, folks, because those shows always sell out and D.C. is just always amazing. Okay, let's see. What is next? Ba-ba-ba-ba. Vancouver! Vancouver! <laughs> We're there on April 27th. The pitch deadline is March 30th. The theme is overwhelmed. So come out and see us, Vancouver, and pitch us your stories. Seattle, we are there on April 28th. The theme is enraged. The pitch deadline is March 31st. Yeah, really? Yeah. April 30th, we're in Portland, Oregon at Revolution Hall. The theme is despair, and the pitch deadline is April 2nd. Boston? We uh, don't yet have the date nailed down, but uh, Boston, we're coming to you sometime in May. I think. Minneapolis, May 21st. May 21st, we're back at Brave New Workshop. The theme is repugnant. (laughs) And the pitch deadline is April 23rd. Oh, my holy Christ. Uh, St. Louis, Missouri, June 25th. Look for that. Pitch us. Worried. The deadline is May 28th. The theme is worried. I believe that's all I'm supposed to announce for now, except for saying, of course, folks, today is the day. Take a risk. Got the screaming sea monkey, the sopping walnut, the Mississippi drip, the Beck porch barnacle, the red and itchy, the drudge report, the brown eye winker, the hell 9000, the arse gargler, the slurp, the wily Filipino. The Andrews Sisters, the Loose Caboose, the Friend of Roland, the Sit and Spin, the Snack in the Box.